Let me invite you to take your Bibles out this morning, and I'm going to have you turn to Luke's Gospel, and I'll have you turn to chapter 24. We'll be reading a portion of that here in just a moment. But this morning, of course, we come to a consideration of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the the physical, bodily rising of Jesus Christ on the third day from the dead, the final act of Christ's earthly work of redemption. And we often think that, that his redemptive work ended on the cross with his phrase, it is finished, and, and while it is true that on the cross the full and complete payment for the sins of all those who trust in Christ was fully made, it is also true that that's not the end of the story. There is more. There is yet a glorious, saving, absolutely vital final act. And that's the resurrection. Because the resurrection, beloved, is not an add-on to Christianity, not an add-on to the story of Christ, not like a prologue or an epilogue, but it's an essential part of Christ's work. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 said that if Christ is not raised, if he is not raised from the dead, Paul says, your faith is worthless. He said our preaching is worthless. And he said, if Christ is not raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. And 1 Corinthians 15, earlier in that chapter, defines the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there is a a huge weight on the truth of the empty tomb. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without it, Jesus is just like so many of the ones who have come and said that they have a message, even a saving message for mankind. For while all of those who have made that claim are still in their graves, and you can go to their graves, that the difference with Christianity is that the tomb is empty. That Christ did what he said he was going to do. Jesus repeated claims that he would be killed but rise on the third day. Those are just the, the delusions of a, of a deceiver, of a deranged mind, if he didn't, in fact, rise from the dead on the third day. And so there is a great importance, a great emphasis in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and the other books of the New Testament on the truth of the resurrection. Because the truth is that Jesus did rise from the dead on the third day, just as he said he was going to do. And the resurrection is therefore a central doctrine of Christianity, unsurpassed in, in its importance By the resurrection, the atonement was declared by God the Father to have been received and effective. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval on the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. 
In the resurrection, Christ was openly declared to be who he said that he was, namely God himself come in the flesh. And by the resurrection, all of his claims were therefore substantiated. And finally, by the resurrection, Christian, our own final resurrection was foreshadowed and assured. So this morning, I want to draw your attention to that all-important act by looking at the, the record of the resurrection, or more specifically, perhaps, the record of the discovery of the resurrection. The gospel writers in both the crucifixion and the resurrection are very brief. When it comes to the crucifixion, the actual record of the crucifixion is recorded by them by the record they crucified him. Or having crucified him, they divided his garments. And in the case of the resurrection, we have the same. The writers do not in the record of the resurrection argue for the resurrection. They simply state it. And they state the discovery of it, not by just one person, but by many. They simply state it as truth, which of course it is. Many today reject it. Most today reject it. And they do so because they have determined already beforehand that people do not rise from the dead. And in most cases, that's right. But they do therefore dismiss it out of hand that it could even happen, even as a historical fact, which it is. They reject it basically because they don't have faith to believe it. Scripture, though, the Bible that God has given to us, His Word breathed out for us, is very clear that Jesus, dead and buried on Friday, was raised to life again in the same body, now glorified on the first day of the week according to the Scriptures. And belief in that fact, belief in the resurrection, is essential Christian doctrine. Romans 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. As with the account of the the crucifixion, each of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who of course all all record the, the resurrection, they all focus on different aspects of the resurrection. They don't contradict one another. They all agree on the facts, but each of them record different aspects of the resurrection. Each one record different facts from it. And we're going to turn to one of those accounts this morning, and that is the one that I've had you turn to in Luke chapter 24. If you haven't already turned there, do so now. And let me just give you a brief reminder of the events that have happened in the past week as we come to uh, the resurrection day. Jesus... One week earlier, we talked about this in the message last Sunday, entered into Jerusalem and was at that time heralded as the son of David, as the king of Israel, heralded as the long-awaited Messiah. He was praised by the people. But the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, out of hatred and out of envy, they were seeking a way to to rid themselves of Christ 
and finally found it in that week when one of Jesus' own 12 closest disciples agreed to hand over Jesus to them for a mere pittance of money, 30 pieces of silver. That plan was executed while Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was arrested. He was betrayed, he was, he was arrested, he was brought before first the Jewish religious leaders where false witnesses and false charges were eventually able to be brought together and brought against him. And then he was turned over, since the Jews could not put him to death, he was turned over to the, the civil rulers, the Roman rulers. And the Roman rulers, two of them before whom Jesus was taken, it is very important to note that those two civil rulers found him not guilty of anything at all. But nevertheless, at the continued instigation of the crowds, Jesus was taken, beaten, stripped, mocked, and killed. And killed by crucifixion. The most tortuous, degrading, painful, agonizing death that the Roman, the mighty Roman Empire could come up with as a means of capital punishment. A means so gruesome that the Jews considered it a cursed death. And by dying this death, Jesus bore the wrath not just of men, but the wrath of God against the sins of everyone who would believe in him. And then we read this in Luke chapter 24, follow along with me, beginning in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. But he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious truth that it reveals to us. And we pray that as we look at these things this morning that you would bless this time, that you would bless your word as it goes forth. We ask, Father, that your spirit would use your word to convict sinners and to comfort saints and to strengthen them in their faith, O God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So we have uh, this one record here in Luke chapter 24. We'll also be looking at the record of the resurrection according to some of the other gospel writers and bringing in some of the facts that, that Luke doesn't record but the other writers do record as we look at this. Um, and we're going to be looking at the discovery of the resurrection through the eyes, as it were, of four groups of people who were present at this time, and, and one group that was not present, but a group that nonetheless has a deep, deep concern uh, regarding the things of the resurrection. So these are some of the first witnesses of the rec- resurrection, and we're first going to look at the first ones who discovered it. And they were the women, a group of women. We'll call them the faithful women. Verse 1 here records the fact that um, in all four Gospels this is recorded. It begins with with a group of women coming to the tomb very early Sunday morning. Here in verse 1 it says, On the first day of the week at early dawn they went to the tomb. But if we back up uh, just a couple of verses into chapter 23, it says, The women who had come with him from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. So this is speaking here about this group of women who went to the tomb. And they come to the tomb in great grief and with sad work that needs to be done. The various gospel writers identify uh, these women. Mary Magdalene was one of them. Our author uh, describes them or lists some of them down in verse 10. Mary Magdalene was a, a woman who had been delivered from seven evil spirits by Jesus earlier in his ministry. And out of gratitude, she became a disciple of his, a follower of his, and gave of her own wealth, of her own substance for the support of Jesus' ministry. Mary Magdalene is among the women who followed Jesus even on his last journey to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And she stayed, the record shows us, near the cross through Jesus' crucifixion and then followed him to his burial place and saw where he was laid. That's an important fact that we see uh, here in this record. The second is another Mary, Mary a very common name in those days. Mary, the mother of James, she's referred to as James, known as James the Less, James the the Younger. Uh, She is another one of those who are traveling with them and and come to the tomb this uh, first day of the week at the morning. Uh, Another woman named Salome, who was the the mother of the disciples James and John, Uh, she is one of them. Another one named Joanna, who was actually the wife of Herod's household manager. According to Luke 8.3, we learn, we learn that, and she is with them as well. And verse 10 here in our text this morning tells us that there are other women as well, but a group of women, and only a group of women at this time, come. And they come with this task to do what they need to do. Thank the Lord for the compassion of these women, and of women in general. These women are not mentioned a whole lot throughout Scripture, but they were there at the tomb. They were, or they were there at the cross. 
They were there at Jesus' time of need, and they stood by, and they followed Jesus' body to the tomb and saw where it was laid when Jesus was, was buried. Luke twenty three fifty five says that the women who had come with him followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And once it was laid in the tomb, and it was laid in the tomb, Jesus was uh, taken down from the cross and, and quickly put in a tomb so that his body wouldn't be hanging out um, onto the Sabbath day. The Jews requested that that would be done so that a body would not be hanging on the Sabbath day. And so uh, he is, Jesus is quickly taken from the cross, uh, wrapped very uh, superficially, and taken and laid in the tomb. They couldn't continue the work of dealing with the body after sundown, which was when the Sabbath began. So the the women then return home then after seeing Jesus laid in the tomb. And they begin preparations for the work that they will pick up as early as possible on the day after the Sabbath. And they prepared spices and perfumes. And then the text says, rested on the Sabbath And then verse 1 of chapter 24 says that they brought the spices with them on Sunday morning, the first day of the week. That is the way that bodies were, dead bodies were dealt with. Uh, Embalming wasn't done in Palestine like what we do today. That was an Egyptian practice at the time uh, that had to do with preserving the body according to their beliefs for the afterworld. But the Jews would rather anoint the body, they would wrap the body uh, with spices and aromatics, and then they would lay it in a tomb. And after Jesus was crucified, his body had been quickly wrapped uh, for burial by a man named Joseph of Arimathea and a man named Nicodemus. And it's that Nicodemus that Jesus had spoken to way back at the beginning of John's Gospel. And now, the first thing on the the third day after Jesus had been crucified, on Sunday, the first day of the week, these women come to the tomb to complete this work, this work of love that they are coming to do. But when they get there, they find several things that are different than what they expect. First, and amazingly, they find that the stone that had covered the tomb that that, tomb or that that stone had been rolled back. That had been a concern for them as they were walking uh, toward the, the tomb that morning. Mark records that on their way they were saying to each other, who will roll the stone away for us? These stones that covered the, the front of tombs weighed between 2,000 and 4,000 pounds, so this group of women are not going to move this stone away from the tomb. That's the first thing. Second... And of course, most wonderfully, though at the time perplexing to them, when they enter the tomb, they find that Jesus is not in the tomb, that he is gone. And then third, as they stand there wondering about this in amazement about what could have happened, they are met there by two men, two men that the Bible describes in dazzling apparel. We learn that these are two angels who explain things to them, and we'll look more at that. But then there is a a complex of activity that, that takes place, and it's interesting, you have to look through all of the four Gospels and, and sort of piece together the timeline of this, and just to give you an idea, perhaps this is the first time this morning that you have heard this story, 
You know, in the past, we would think that, that everyone knows the story of the resurrection, but in today's day and age, it's becoming less and less uh, common um, that people have heard it. And so just to, to show what had happened, to summarize this so that we're not hopping around, let me just uh, give to you all of the comings and goings here. These women, uh, including Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, uh, Salome, and the others in this group, they all set out for the tomb uh, very early on Sunday morning, even before the sun came up. They want to get their first thing so that they can begin their work. Then Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, as she is described, um, they hurry ahead of the others and come to the tomb first. And Mary Magdalene then hurries ahead of the other Mary and arrives at the tomb in the early morning twilight. And in that dark light, she sees that the tomb, or that the stone in front of the tomb, which she and the others had seen, rolled in front of it on Friday, the text tells us, Mark 15 and Matthew 27, they had seen it rolled in front of it, that it's now been rolled away from the entrance. And she then jumps to the logical conclusion that someone has stolen Jesus' body. And Mary Magdalene then takes off to run and to tell Peter and John that they've stolen the body of the Lord. Meanwhile, the other women come to the tomb as the sun is rising. They also see the stone gone, but they go in to check out what has happened. And there they are confronted by these two angels, one of whom speaks to them and tells them that, well, Jesus isn't here. He's risen, as he said, and instruct the women then to go and to tell his disciples, which they then return to town to do. First not believing it, but coming on the way to town as they discuss a, a proper realization of just what a wonderful event has happened. Mary Magdalene, in the meantime, she has found Peter and John, two of the disciples, and when she tells them that the Lord's body has been stolen, the two of them take off running back to the tomb. By the way, we'll talk about this a little more later, but this points to the falseness of the claim that is sometimes made, that was made then and is made today, that the disciples stole the body. You know, if they had, they would not have been so concerned to find out if it had really been stolen and probably would have run in the other direction, not run back to what it would have been the scene of the crime. But Peter and John run back to the tomb. John gets there first. Uh, but he doesn't go into the tomb. He stops outside. But then Peter, being Peter, he, he runs and barges right past John and, and plunges right into the tomb and sees, John follows him then afterwards, and see that the tomb is indeed empty. And then they both leave and head back to town. Mary Magdalene has followed them back and has stayed outside. But after Peter and John leave, she goes into the tomb herself and she sees the same angels there that the other woman had seen and speaks with the angels briefly. Then when she leaves the tomb, John 20 tells us that she runs into someone, someone that she thinks is the gardener. But then he speaks to her and she then recognizes him as the Lord Jesus Christ who speaks to her and sends her to the, tell the other disciples. The other women, they're still on their way back to town 
when they too are met by Jesus. And he instructs them as well to go and to tell his disciples that he had risen just as he said. And so see the great privilege that this group of women is given to be the first to see and to hear of and to report the resurrection of Christ. Christ in his grace and in his kindness presents himself alive to them. And to them is given the unique task of being the herald of the resurrection to Jesus' own disciples. Go and tell the disciples that he is risen. The first human heralds of the resurrection, according to Matthew 28.10 and John 20.17, are these women. What a great honor that was given to them. Women who had been at the cross, staying near Christ through his suffering. Uh, what an informative thing for people who are of the opinion that Christianity has a very low view of women. Uh, to understand that to them was given the first view of the resurrected Christ. And by the way, what a great honor to you, Christian, that you likewise are given the opportunity to spread the word, to spread the word that he is not here, he is not there, he is not in the ground because he is risen, just as he said. And in both cases of of Jesus presenting himself to these women, their immediate response upon meeting Jesus is to fall at his feet and worship him, the text tells us. And that, of course, is the only appropriate response of all who meet Jesus, to worship him. Not just seeing him in a garden, not just seeing him along the road, but now as we see him in the pages of Scripture, in the preaching of the gospel of Christ, that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came down from heaven, took on a human nature, and lived a perfect life among us. Obeying God's word perfectly. Preaching about the kingdom of God. Teaching others about God and about their need for salvation. A salvation that comes through him. And uh, eternal life that is available through him, through faith in him. And then to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for the sins of those who trust him, bearing the wrath of God against all of that sin. So as the Bible says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no fear of condemnation, no threat of hell for those who trust Christ. And these faithful women are the first to see Christ after he has risen from the dead. A second group we have before us to look at, and we'll call them the instructive angels. We see them in verses 4 through 7. We see their, their work. It says, While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. They meet these two angels. Uh, Angels, of course, throughout God's word 
have various tasks. They reveal God's word. They minister to God's people. They minister particularly to God's son, to Jesus as he was here. They are God's servants to do his bidding. But they are mostly spoken of in God's word as the messengers of God to men. Remember that they announced the coming birth of Christ, speaking to to Joseph and to Mary about this one who would come. They announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. And now they they present, they they, uh, speak to to these women the resurrection. They announce the resurrection to the women and instruct them on the event that has taken place. Luke here and John in his gospel mention both angels. Matthew and Mark focus on the one who speaks. Some have seen a contradiction that, well, one mentions two and one mentions one. Well, one mentions two because there were two there and one mentions one because that's who talked. And the angels then serve as witnesses to these women. And they instruct these women in three ways. First of all, just by their appearance. Now, angels can certainly appear and have appeared in in normal human form. Think back to Genesis 18 and the, the angels that came to announce the birth of Isaac to Abraham and the destruction of Sodom. But these angels are described by Matthew as, yes, as two men, but as men having appearance like lightning and clothing as white as snow and by Luke here as wearing dazzling apparel. The appearance of these two angels to these women point to the fact that clearly there is something explicitly supernatural going on here. Their thoughts were raised to heaven by the appearance of dazzling angels. There's something more going on here than just an open tomb. And here in Luke, the woman's response is one of fear and reverence before these angels. So even by their appearance, they teach these women. Secondly, they also instruct them by their actions. Matthew tells us in chapter 28 that one of these angels had come down ahead of time to do a little advance work. Primarily by rolling back that stone that we mentioned earlier that lay across the opening of the tomb. These stones that were, that sealed these tombs were were huge stones. As I mentioned, 2,000 to 4,000 pounds. They were cut into the shape of basically a big wheel, uh, large enough to completely cover the opening to the tomb. And then they were fit into a groove, a a, a declined groove in front of the, the tomb so that they would roll sort of down in place. And to get them open, you would have to push them back up Uh, the the incline. It would take the coordinated effort of several men to to move one of these. And this particular stone had added security measures on it that we'll speak of in a little bit. But the angel comes down, and Scripture says with no effort at all, he rolls the stone away. Why do you think he did that? Well, you say so Jesus could get out of the tomb. Uh, well, we'll read later that Jesus, after his resurrection, can enter into locked rooms. Uh, and, and he did just rise from the dead. 
and he is the God of the universe. So he was certainly able, uh, without the angel's help, to get out of the tomb. So no, the stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away from the tomb because the angel knew that this tomb was about to have visitors and that they would need to get in. So it was rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let the woman, women in. And, as it were, to let the world in. To show the world that Christ is risen indeed. So they instruct the women by those actions. And then finally they instruct the women by their words. Verse 5, he says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? What are you doing here with with herbs and aromatics. You know, why are you here with things to tend to the dead? He is not here, they say. He is risen. And he goes on and says, don't you remember? Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? As he set his face to go to Jerusalem, he told his disciples, he told those that followed him all of these things that he was going to go and suffer and die and on the third day rise again. And now the angel reminds the women that this is just what he said. The women are just like you and me. We need to be reminded of these things regularly of what Jesus said and what Jesus taught because we tend to forget them. That's why we need to be so often reminded about the gospel because we tend to forget it very easily. The women then, with this heavenly instruction regarding the fulfilled promise of the resurrection on the third day of the Messiah, the Son of God, they rush back to town and tell all of this to the 11 disciples. Verse 9 says, And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And we read that the disciples, remembering the words of Jesus, rejoice with one voice and cry out, The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed as He promised He would. And it... Oh, wait. That's not quite right, is it? That's not the reaction of the disciples, is it? We've seen the faithful women. We've seen the instructive angels. Now let's look at the disciples, and we're going to have to call them the doubting disciples here, which is interesting. You know, we often talk about doubting Thomas. I think Thomas gets a bad rap because of what we see here. And it's often a disappointing experience for us when we turn to the disciples because no matter when we look at their actions, we've been looking at it in the book of Mark here in our study through that, we're always confronted with the fact that they just never seem to really get it, to never really understand what Jesus is saying. His words never seem to click until later, until after the resurrection, until after these events that we're looking at. Then the things start to make sense to them. But let me suggest to you that that should be a comfort to you rather than a frustration to know that even these men who walked with Jesus day by day for three and a half years, they were still men like us. And the women were women like you as well, women. 
They had come to the tomb. They had heard Jesus' promises, and yet they came to the tomb to deal with a dead body, not to worship a risen Savior. Well, we see this case again here. The women, they did as they were told. They told the disciples that he was risen. But if you look at verse 11, you get the real reaction of the disciples. It says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. An idle tale. Nonsense. Foolishness. Complete and utter nonsense, the words mean. And they did not believe them. Later, Jesus is going to speak to two disciples on the road to a town called Emmaus, and he speaks to them. And they will say the same thing. If you drop down to verse 21, you will see the middle of that conversation. Jesus asks them something, and they say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. They didn't believe either. How about you this morning? Christian, let me talk to you first. When you hear that Christ is risen from the dead, does your heart rejoice? Does your voice rejoice? Are are you like the, the imperfect but the faithful women and the obedient women who, who rush back to spread the word? Or are you like the doubting disciples who think it's nonsense? There are those people sitting in churches who call themselves Christians who say that the resurrection didn't happen. You cannot do that. This is too fundamental. How about unbelievers this morning? You who are sitting here who are not Christians? Uh, Those who may be watching or listening who are not believers? You know, this morning... By God's grace, in this place, I am proclaiming to you this morning that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified, dead, and buried, but on the third day he rose again from the dead just as he said that he would and that he calls on you to believe in him, to trust him, to turn from your sin and to follow him from this day forward. How do you receive that? Is it utter nonsense to learn that you can have eternal life, that you in your present state apart from Christ are destined to hell and eternal punishment for your sins, but that you can be redeemed, that you can be forgiven for all of that, and you can be brought to a place where you have received eternal life? Is that utter nonsense to you, or is it to you what it is in fact? And what this is, in fact, not just the record of life from the dead for Jesus, but the message of spiritual life from the dead for you. If you throw yourself on God's mercy, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How do you receive this? The disciples at that time didn't believe it. It's too amazing. Now, of course, Jesus went on from from this point, and as Luke writes in the book of Acts, he presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. 
appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Paul says that Jesus uh, appeared to many, to over 500 at one time after his resurrection. And these 11 doubting men who had been scattered after the, the arrest of Jesus, one had denied even knowing him, these two who said we had hoped that he had been the one to redeem Israel, these men, because of the resurrection, because of meeting the risen Christ, they began what has withstood every onslaught of unbelief that unbelief can throw at it. And the church of Christ continues to this day, and Christ promised that it will never be destroyed. This day is also a comfort to us of that fact that persecution will not destroy Christ's church. So that's the doubting disciples. So the faithful women, the instructive angels, the doubting disciples, and now we come to an unwitting witness. In fact, it's a group, so we'll call them the unwitting witnesses. This is a group that we haven't yet encountered in our look this morning. But let me read to you from Matthew 27, the record here. We read that the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, so this would be on Saturday, that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. Then Pilate responds to them, you have a guard. You have what you requested. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went to the tomb and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And it's so wonderful to see these demonstrations of the the frailty and the weakness of even the most hardened men in the face of the work of God, which we see here. So we have a dead body, we have a tomb covered with a huge stone, and now we have a detachment of soldiers who come and seal the tomb and, and affix to it the seal of Tiberius, the Roman governor, that says, if you mess with this tomb... You will incur the wrath of the Roman Empire. And they have a detachment of Roman guards. Three times in that passage from Matthew that I just read, we read the word secure. Order that the tomb be made secure. Go and make it as secure as you can. And they went and made the tomb secure. They were taking, beloved, no chances. And then the angel descends. And there's an earthquake as the stone which these soldiers are bound to protect is rolled away. And the guards, trained Roman soldiers, we read, for fear of him, that is of the angel, trembled and became like dead men. They passed out. Now, if, in what we've read here, notice that this whole record of the coming of the women and of Peter and of John and all of that, nothing said about the Roman soldiers at the tomb. Why? They're gone. They're 
on their way trying to figure out how they're going to explain their failure to their superiors without losing their jobs, if not their heads. Then this, from Matthew 28. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Notice that, all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. What wonderful providence by God. It is this very fear that the disciples would come and steal Jesus' body that God uses to actually refute that charge. That, that those who would bring up such a charge uh, would do, who would say that Jesus' body was actually stolen. When unbelievers who want to deny all supernatural events say that Christ could not have risen from the dead, they very often resort to this to say, no, he was taken. The disciples came and, and, and stole his body. They come, they come with the very or come to the very conclusion and use the same story that the Pilate and the chief priests and the Pharisees fabricated in the face of what had actually happened. The guards reported all that had taken place, and then they come up with this other story that had not taken place. A first century example of fake news. And their theory was an unbelievable theory then. It is now. And about this lie which the chief priests and the elders give to the, to the guard to tell, along with a good deal of money, we read, it's not even a good lie. Was anyone, and are we, really to believe that these guards, on such an important detail, would all of them had fallen asleep? that they wouldn't take watches during the night and at least one of them be awake. These were trained soldiers of the Roman Empire. And even then, are we to believe that if they had, that in the quiet of the night, a group of men could come and roll a large stone away from a tomb and take the body and not have awakened at least one of the guards? And finally... If we grant the first two, if we grant that all the guards had fallen asleep and that not one of them had been awakened by the noise of the activity, if that is all true, well then, how then did the guards know what happened? That is true. So those are the unwitting witnesses. They did not intend to be, but they are, and here recorded for us, as themselves witnesses to the truth of the fact that Jesus is risen. The faithful women are witnesses of that fact. The instructive angels are witnesses of Christ's resurrection. The doubting disciples are. And there's these unwitting witnesses. And there's one more group that we need to consider this morning. Let's call them the blessed beneficiaries. Now, we said this 
or we would say this in, re in regard, of course, to the crucifixion as well, but it can't go unsaid in regard to the resurrection that this was all done for a reason. It was done, first and foremost, above anything else, as all things are, to glorify God. We must also recognize that the resurrection happened because it could not help but happen. Jesus was raised from the dead partly because being God, as Acts 2.24 says, it was not possible for him to be held in its power. And it was done that the sins of God's people might be atoned for. Again, going along with the crucifixion. Crucifixion, resurrection, always go together. Romans 4.25 says that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, for our right standing before God. And who are the hour that Paul speaks of there in Romans 4? Delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Well, he means that it's, it is for all of those who would look to Christ for salvation, for those whom God would turn to his Son. It is for those who trust in Christ, who rest in Christ and call upon his name. It is for them, for you, if that is you, that all that we have seen all that we have seen this morning, all we have learned about, about Christ's death and his resurrection, that all of that was done. That's the purpose. We are the ones, Christian, who are blessed. We are the blessed beneficiaries. We are the ones who have had a good done for us, the best good. And so this morning, we don't simply celebrate a day on a calendar we don't simply celebrate an event on a day, but, beloved, we celebrate a Savior, don't we? A Savior who suffered the torments of the wrath of God on the cross, who was dead and buried and was raised to life that we might be made right with God, and a Savior who still lives, who ever lives, to make intercession for us. The Lord, the giver of life, God and man in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Savior of all who will call upon him. And so, we have the glorious conclusion that should be on our lips and on our hearts always that he did not stay dead, but that the Lord is risen he is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the news, the glorious news of the resurrection. We thank you for the truth that as Christ died for our sins, that he was delivered up for our sins, that he was also raised for our justification. He was raised that the that the world might know, that we might know, that you, O oh God, accepted his sacrifice, accepted his payment for our sins on our behalf so that we would not have to pay for those sins. We pray, Father, that on this day that we would rejoice afresh, rejoice anew in the resurrection of Christ 
and more importantly, in the Christ of the resurrection. And that we would proclaim him, that we would love him, that we would live for him. And in all these things, Lord, that through him you would glorify yourself. And we ask this in his name. Amen.